You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Twitter details actions against coordinated inauthenticity in Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, Ecuador, Spain, and China. Tension with Iran remains high, but cyber action hasn't sharply spiked. The Smaminru botnet installs malware, including miners, and kicks other malicious code out of infected machines. Panda crypto jackers are careless, but effective. Huawei says it's the victim of a bill of attainder. We learn all about hard sex security that's come out of the UK. And more notes from CISA's National Cybersecurity Summit. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, September 20th, 2019. Twitter this morning announced six new datasets concerning information operations. As the platform puts it in the announcement, Per our policies on platform manipulation, we have permanently suspended all the below accounts from the service. The campaigns were as follows. 273 accounts operated from Egypt and the United Arab Emirates by the private company .dev were removed from Twitter. 4,248 operating from the UAE alone were also suspended. The tweets from both accounts addressed various regional issues, mostly involving negative stories about Qatar, Yemen, Iran, and Oman, and expressing some degree of support for Saudi policies. Six accounts from Saudi Arabia, a small group, as Twitter acknowledged, were suspended for misrepresenting themselves as independent journalistic outlets, when in fact they were simply amplifying Saudi state media. 265 accounts in Spain, operated by Partido Popular, were spamming and retweeting in ways designed to increase engagement. Twitter banned these for falsely boosting public sentiment online, a rather opaque description for activity that appears in a report that describes itself as a dedication to transparency, but we'll let that pass. Hashtag manipulation and retweet spam earned some 1,019 accounts in Ecuador a ban. The campaign was linked to the PAIS Alliance political party and was conducted largely by fake accounts set up in the interest of spreading notes about President Moreno's administration. Finally, Twitter published information about 4,301 accounts based in China. This is a second round of the very large sweep of 200,000 accounts conducted last month. Their goal was to sow discord about the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. Twitter, like Facebook, seems more comfortable and indeed effective when it's dealing with coordinated inauthenticity than when it's attempting more direct forms of content moderation. Tensions between Iran and its regional rivals continue to run high after strikes against Saudi oil production facilities that have been widely attributed to Tehran. The U.S. has announced tighter sanctions and is making certain preparations with countries in the Gulf region, notably Saudi Arabia. Iran is showing signs of heightened activity in cyberspace, 
Fifth Domain quotes U.S. CISA Director Krebs as saying at the National Cybersecurity Summit this week. That Iranian activity, however, hasn't risen as much as might have been expected. The observed op-tempo is lower, for example, than it was in the wake of Iran's destruction of a U.S. Global Hawk surveillance drone earlier this summer. In the ebb and flow of cybercrime, right now cryptojacking is flowing, this despite premature declarations that miners were now passé. Gardacore has been tracking the propagation of the Smallminru botnet, noted for its use of Eternal Blue, for its high reinfection rate, and for its installation of a variety of malicious tools, including Monero miners. Bleeping Computer points out that Smallminru goes to some trouble to remove rival malware strains from the machines it infects. Cisco's Talos unit has been following Panda, a cryptojacking group that's been around for some time. Its OPSEC is still poor, but it continues to evolve new functionality that has netted the crooks about $100,000 so far. Researchers at security firm Wandera found two malicious apps in Google's Play Store. Both are selfie filter apps that also serve up adware. Sun Pro Beauty Camera and Funny Sweet Beauty Camera, the two apps in question, enjoyed more than a million and a half downloads. Wandera reported them to Google, which has ejected them from the Play Store. Huawei is making the case in a U.S. federal court this week that sanctions against the company amount to an unconstitutional bill of attainder, the Wall Street Journal reports. This argument is similar to the one Kaspersky unsuccessfully raised against its own ban from U.S. federal networks. A bill of attainder is an unconstitutional punishment imposed on a legal person by legislative action as opposed to a court. It seems unlikely that Huawei will enjoy any more success with this argument than Kaspersky did. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's second annual National Cybersecurity Summit wraps up today just outside Washington, D.C. In a keynote delivered Wednesday, CISA Director Chris Krebs outlined what the new agency has achieved since it was set up last year. Krebs cited a number of directives and executive orders that have been passed, and he pointed to the series of indictments against threat actors around the world. As an example of the effectiveness of these measures, he said that, quote, Indictments of the SamSam ransomware actors have stopped SamSam ransomware attacks worldwide. He cited these achievements in the course of advocating what amounts to a whole-of-nation approach with strong cooperation between government and the private sector. Krebs stressed the growing importance of cooperation between the public and private sectors in defending against threats. Quote, The government's not going to solve this problem alone. This is a national problem set. End quote. Krebs wants to prepare for a large-scale cyber attack before it happens. Relating such an event to a natural disaster, he said, We know how to prepare for hurricanes because we know what happens when a hurricane hits. We don't have that level of knowledge when it comes to a cyber event. But he said the spate of ransomware attacks against government targets this summer came pretty close to a large-scale event. One of the threats CISA is preparing for is the possibility that ransomware could be deployed against voter registration databases during the 2020 election. One sort of private sector contribution Krebs would discourage, however, is FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. He pointedly asked the cybersecurity industry to stop selling fear. He acknowledged that it's an effective marketing tactic, but said we need to remove the hysteria and have measured and reasonable conversations about threats, particularly those surrounding election security. The threats to infrastructure are undeniably real, but self-interested alarmism doesn't help. 
and only serves to drive down voter confidence. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Malek Ben-Salem. She's the Senior R&D Manager for Security at Accenture Labs. Uh, Malek, it's always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch base with you on the news we've been seeing lately when it comes to facial recognition systems. I wanted to get your take on you know, where are we, what's the technology, where do things stand? Yeah, so facial recognition technology has spread widely over the last uh, decade, um, especially due to advances in uh, big data, deep convolutional networks, and uh, the graphics processing units, or GPUs. Uh, and we see them being used widely. Um, you know, most people know them from social networking platforms where uh, pictures or people fa- people's faces get tagged. Uh, they're used for, um, you know, to spot missing people, uh, mm. to catch slackers who lie about the hours they spend in the office. Mm. Uh, most recently, they've been deployed at, the, I believe, the Hyderabad uh, airport. Uh, so you can use your face now as your boarding card. Uh, so the you know, the uses continue to be to, to grow thanks to the advances in computational power and to deep learning, but there are issues with the technology itself. What kind of concerns are you tracking? 
Well, there's obviously the the privacy concern, the fact that these technologies are being used everywhere, not necessarily with people's uh, consent. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, just last week, um, one school was fined in Europe because it used facial recognition systems to track the presence of students uh, in the school. Um, so the, this was in Sweden, and uh, you know, about a twenty thousand euro fine was issued against this school because of of that use. Hmm. Uh, but beyond the the privacy concerns. Um, Facial recognition systems, uh, just like any machine learning systems, you know, reflect the data that they get trained with. And because uh, a lot of the data that they were trained with was not reflective of entire populations, they end up with having biased results. So no matter how uh, accuracy improvements they've been able to achieve overall across, you know, the widest population... For certain demographic groups, they don't perform as well, uh, which makes them not reliable. So if we think about uses in law enforcement, for instance, to match certain faces with people of interest or or people who have committed crimes before, then uh, it has been noted that certain demographic Uh, populations are more likely or people from those demographic populations are more likely to be matched to the faces of interest. Yeah, and it seems like that's a that's a high risk uh, proposition there where that's a situation where it's really important to get it right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And that is why we need to take a look back at the data sets that are used to train these facial recognition systems um, to address this bias problem, address this false positive problem when dealing uh, with watch lists. Now, is this something that you think as time goes on, the the reliability is going to improve or are, are we ever going to see these get to the point where we feel like we can trust them? I, I think so. I think the technology will continue to improve. Uh, For instance, we know that up to this point, these systems have had difficulty uh, distinguishing twins, but they can be complemented with certain techniques so that they're able to distinguish uh, the faces of twins. For instance, by looking at, uh, you know, pores within the twins' faces uh, and, you know, computing... Uh, the distances between <laughs> those pores, they may be able to get additional information or additional uh, build additional discriminative power between the faces of twins. Other things that can be leveraged is how the people walk. If we're not just looking at the face of the person, but at the you know the entire uh, video of a person walking or moving, mm. then we're able to improve the accuracy. Uh, of these algorithms uh, and these systems that way. All right. Well, it's uh, something that'll uh, continue to develop and uh, certainly merits uh, keeping an eye on. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. My guest today is Henry Harrison. He's Chief Technology Officer at Garrison 
a company that offers secure isolation technology using a technique called HardSec. We asked Henry Harrison to explain what HardSec is, what it's good for, and where it came from. If you go back like two decades ago and you looked at that kind of national security space in in the world's kind of uh, leading uh, nations, then really pretty much the only cybersecurity tool they trusted was air. Um, and uh, they, they didn't trust any of the software that was around. But obviously just using air as your approach to cybersecurity is incredibly inefficient and, and causes all manner of business problems. So a lot of effort has gone in within that, uh, that community of looking, at, uh, looking into technologies that they would be, able, would be willing to trust. And HardSec basically um, it, it is the... It comes from one key insight, which is that the reason that exploitation of vulnerabilities in software is such a problem is because of the very nature of software. It's because software uh, is a concept that's based around the Turing machine. You have these hardware platforms that are essentially universal Turing machines, and they'll do absolutely anything you want them to, provided you give them the right software. And that's also the great, you know, the, the, the great opening for an attacker. So if you can trick the, the software that's running, you can get the Turing machine to do what you want it to do instead. And the, you know, the objective with HardSec was to say, well, how can we do the strongest way of doing security is to use non-Turing machine approaches, to use less sophisticated digital logic, so simple state machines, simple combinatorial logic to implement security controls, at which point we don't have that inherent um, vulnerability issue that we've got associated with software. And, you know, that's not, in some ways, that's not a new thing, right? Because, uh, you know, processor manufacturers have been building, you know, core security features like memory isolation and NXBit and um, uh, VM support and so on using non-Turing machine logic inside their hardware. Um, but the inside of HardSec was that we could make all that field programmable by using a different type of silicon device called a field programmable gate array or an FPGA I mean, if you'll forgive me, I'm reminded of uh, the original um, Pong arcade machine, which my understanding is was was hardwired uh, to 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 play Pong and only play Pong. <laughs> uh, you couldn't, you know, reprogram it to play Pac-Man or Asteroids or anything else. It was uh, circuits soldered together on a board to do only that one thing. Is that the sort of thing we're talking about here? Well, so that's that, that's certainly true. That Pong is very very secure, right? And uh, as you say, it's only going to play Pong. But nobody wants to return to that world where we have um, machines that can only play Pong. Um, mm. We can pretty basically kiss goodbye to decades of innovation if we try and do that. And we're certainly <laughs> not going to innovate anything more because sure. the, econo the economics don't work, right? We can't go around building special hardware for every job that we need to do. That, that's simply not going to work. And that's why hardware-level security has historically been something that has, has applied to very, very specific things that, that are universal, right? So, for example, virtual memory protections. That's a tool that's used by, you know, all manner of different um, applications. Uh, and so it's built into processors uh, and it's universal. We can afford to, to take the manufacturing cost of building that into the processors because everybody uses it. But it's not a good way to solve a whole, you know, broader range of, of security problems because, you know, we just can't justify building hardware for them. Um, and so th this, this trick of using field programmable gate arrays, FPGAs, really allows us to get the best of both worlds. So you can get the, the inherent security that comes from uh, building something that can only do one thing and yet at the same time achieve the seemingly impossible, which is to make it actually reprogrammable so you can have a single piece of hardware that does multiple different tasks at different times, depending on what logic you tell it to have. Help me understand um, how that's not 
merely shifting the security back a layer. If, if you if you can still program that gate array, right? Isn't there an issue there? Yeah, well, that's uh, it couldn't have been a better question because the <laughs> the real key thing about an FPGA is that you can reprogram it. Hence, it's called field programmable. But you can only reprogram it using very specific pins on the device. And so the security architecture for hardsec says, okay, what you need to do above all is take those pins out to a dedicated management interface, right? An out-of-band management interface um, so that the, the, the FPGA can only be reprogrammed by somebody who's got access to the management interface or to a network that's connected to that management interface. And then if the um, FPGA is processing inputs that come from other pins, that would be connected to the internet or connected to you know corporate network or whatever. Um, then data that's coming through that physical interface can't reprogram the FPGA. So what we've done is we've isolated the reprogramming capability, and then we're able to say, okay, we can apply all manner of restrictions on which people are allowed to reprogram it, under what circumstances, what monitoring we can do around them, in what physical scenarios, and so on, um, just as you would with a typical kind of data center out of band management network. So what are the applications mm. for which HardSec is the right choice? And, and are there are there applications where it's not the right choice? Yeah, so, so it's definitely not the right choice, right, for building your uh, next generation machine learning artificial intelligence platform that requires, you know, constant innovation and so on. We, we, we still need to, you know, fundamentally, m most things are going to continue to be built using software. The, the real um, role that HardSec plays is above all around input sanitization. I mean, everybody's used to input sanitization in the context of web development, um, where we say, okay, well, we need to uh, make sure that sequences are escaped and so on to avoid uh, vulnerabilities like SQL injections. Um, but actually, there's a much broader scope for input sanitization, where instead of trying to say we're going to detect bad things and stop them, uh, what we do instead is we say, okay, we're going to assume everything is bad, uh, and then we're going to transform it uh, into a form which we can validate to be good. Um, and that's a pattern, in fact, that uh, was published by um, the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre, which is part of the GCHQ Intelligence Agency last year. And they called it a um, uh, pattern for safely importing data. And they talk about transforming data into a, into a format where it can be uh, verified uh, before you bring it in. That, that's applied to all manner of different things. So um, it can be applied to uh, structured data like uh, REST APIs and JSON schemas, XML schemas. It can be applied to files. There are companies out there building that kind of approach for uh, file sanitization. Other companies that are doing it around kind of interactive um, human interface streams as well. So kind of like video sanitization and, and, and GUI sanitization. And, and HardSec really plays into that role there where you have um, data that you're going to assume is potentially risky. You're going to transform it into a format which is then easy to verify using a HardSec-based platform. And you've then got a really secure way of knowing that what emerges from that HardSec platform it has a very strong uh, guarantee of being safe. Uh, and, and having been sanitized, ready to pass on to your software systems, which of course have vulnerabilities in them. That's Henry Harrison. He's Chief Technology Officer at Garrison. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too.
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.